It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast, moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. I know you recognize these words. The rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say, does that banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave? It is the climactic words of Francis Scott Key's poem that became our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, written to commemorate really the War of Independence from Great Britain in 1812, but heralds really the Declaration of Independence of 1776, when the Second Continental Congress unanimously adopted the document um, that is America's foundation. We are celebrating America's 245th birthday this week. Freedom and faith, the two powerful stalwarts holding up America's great republic, But we are also in the middle of a war of more strife and conflict as America's very roots are being questioned. And some groups are looking to redefine, redefine what America is. Things like the 1619 Project, woke ideology and critical theory. All of them say, says historian and author Os Guinness, are more in line with the French Revolution of 1789, not America's freedoms ordered by an almighty God. This is where we are today. Os Guinness's new book takes a hard look at Um, at America through the lens of that belief that God's foundational law given to Moses and the Israelites on Mount Sinai centuries ago was the basis for America's greatness and should be still. The book is called The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. And as Guinness joins me now, welcome. Thank you, Lauren. Real pleasure to be with you. Well, a little history lesson here. Now, why do you call God's law obviously that was handed down to the Israelites of Mount Sinai. Why do you call the, it the Magna Carta of humanity? Well, the Magna Carta, I'm English, of course. The Magna Carta is the symbol of freedom and a courageous stand against the abuse of power. But if you look down through history, the greatest stand and symbol of freedom and the greatest stand against the abuse of power is the Hebrew Exodus. And that's precedent and pattern for many revolutions, including the American, but not just in slogans, in substance. It's amazing. Um, That's, you know, because my book is based on sort of the the sort of the hierarchy of the Ten Commandments, um, that the first commandment is the beacon that orders the rest of the commandments, and which is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And that you could not break commandments two through 10 without first breaking number one. And one of the things you you actually, one of the quotes you have in the beginning is uh, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, from his um, warning to the West. He says, the Western world has arrived at a decisive moment. Over the next few years, it will gamble the existence of the civilization that created it. I think it is, um, it is not aware of it. Time has eroded um, your nation of liberty. You have kept the word and devised a different notion. You've forgotten the meaning of liberty. Why have you included that quote in your book? Well, there's no secret that as we come to July the 4th, America is as deeply divided as at any time since the 1850s, just before the Civil War. But why? 
Is it the social media? Is it the former president? Is it the coastals against the heartlanders? Various answers are given. I think the deepest is those who understand the republic and freedom from the perspective of the founding principles, which were largely biblical. In the 17th century, they came from, through the Reformation, from the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And on the other hand, those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the heirs of the French Revolution. So if you look at things like political correctness and the woke culture and all that you said earlier, identity, politics, the sexual revolution, goes on and on. All of those come down from the heirs of the French Revolution, and they are undermining the American Revolution. So, you know, the former president talked about make America great again, and the present president talks about restoring the soul. But neither of them say what made America great in the first place. And that's what a Lincoln did in his time, and that's what a leader needs to do today. Tell us the difference, the real difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution. You were talking about 1776 and 1789. How do they differ in, in their, their quest for freedom? Well, there are probably a dozen major differences, different sources. One, the Bible. The other, the French Enlightenment. Different views of humanity. The biblical revolution, very realistic. Checks and balances, separation of powers. Why? Humans go wrong, have the abuse of power. The French Revolution, utopian. Different views of freedom, different views of religion. But what's mattered this last year is different views of justice. Because both sides see that there is terrible injustice. Take the killing of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. The difference comes in how you respond to it. Because on the left, the radical left side, there is only power. God is dead as they see it. Truth is dead, and all there is is power. So you weaponize the victims, having identified them, and use that to overthrow the status quo. But you have a conflict of powers, and as the Romans put it, it's bound to end in only one thing, the peace of despotism. In other words, a power capable of putting down all other powers, authoritarianism. And that's why the radical left leads to authoritarianism. And these revolutions have never worked and the oppression never ends. Now, the biblical revolution leads in a very different way. I can mention single words. You address truth to power and call for repentance and then forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration. So as Lincoln says, enemies can be turned into friends and wrongs can be righted. They're very, very different. You said a very scary thing, and you actually wrote a very scary thing, talking about that we are more divided um, than at any time since just before the Civil War. And we fought fought a civil war. Are we headed to a civil war? No, I don't think so. At the moment, not, not in terms of arms, no. I think we're in a deeply important cultural war. And I would put the three words you could put the options facing America 2021, revolution, question mark, and I would say, please God, no. The radical left, as I said, has never produced anything but oppression. The second word, oligarchy. America's shifting, and you see a consolidation of power, politics, bureaucracy, the media, entertainment, woke capital, and so on. You're creating an oligarchy that's a long way from democracy. 
And I again would say, as an admirer of this country, please God, no. And the third word, homecoming. Many people forget that the Hebrew word for repentance, teshuvah, actually means not only an about turn of heart and mind, but coming home. Now, what's to go wrong is to be alienated, to be in exile. And to put things right is to come home. America needs to come home to the best of its founding principles. You know, have we ever, do you see on the horizon another Lincoln for America? I mean, is it possible that there could be such a person as that for us? It's quite possible, but I certainly don't see someone like that at the moment. There are those who are capable of it. And I grew up in England under Winston Churchill. I met him as a boy. There was a man of courage, but an incredible sense of vision and history. So almost all his great speeches have an enormous sense of history. Sadly, Americans are, are obsessed with the present mm -hmm. and uh, almost canceling history too. So you don't have people like Lincoln who understand what he called the better angel of the American nature. There are a few leaders who do, but sadly they're not the ones speaking out. So that's one of the great missing things at the moment. Courageous, visionary, historically seasoned leadership. And I personally pray for that every day, that God will bring up such a person. You know, you talk about the French Revolution. I thought, and when I've gone down to the Statue of Liberty, I visited the Statue of Liberty here in New York City, they give great credence to the French Revolution, or they, they understand that the French were, a lot of it, inspired by America's quest for freedom. I mean, wasn't the French Revolution in some way modeled after the American Revolution? Yes and no. I mean, if you take the five great revolutions, the English, 1642, the Americans, 1776, the French, 1789, the Russian, 1917, and the Chinese in 1949, I was there. The first two, English and American, look different. Above all, because one failed, the English, and the other succeeded. But in fact, both of them owed everything to their roots through the Reformation in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Whereas the French, the Russian, and the Chinese are anti-religious and anti-Christian at their core. Mm. So it's true that many of the American revolutionaries, particularly Thomas Jefferson, hoped that the French would follow the Americans. Most of the founders, as you know, didn't. They were wiser. They saw it was wrong, as Edmund Burke did from the beginning. And slowly, Jefferson himself, before he ran for the president, realized it was a very different revolution. So, yes, they're united in the same word mm -hmm. and some of the same slogans, liberty, equality, and fraternity, and so on. But they're very, very different the way they worked out. How does it happen that they work out so differently? Because they're a great admirer of the French Revolution. I mean, I'm, you think about Beethoven's Eroica, which is modeled, first of all, on Napoleon, then of course, when Napoleon attacked Vienna, then it was then he scratched it out. But there was so much, you know, weight put on that as as this, this greater good. And what went wrong with that? Well, the reign of terror was an expression of the absoluteness of power, which eventually produced violence. Because when words break down, and sadly, this is a problem in America today. When words break down, violence is never far away. 
And you can see that the French Revolution was only a matter of power and violence was at the heart of its dynamic. And you have historians like Sharma, Simon Sharma, who points out that violence and the reign of terror were at the heart of the logic of the French Revolution. And you can see today that what we're seeing in Portland and other places is very much the logic of the radical left working out. Because if God is dead and truth is dead, there is only power. So freedom requires truth because if you have truth, you can have trust. And if you have trust, high trust leads to high freedom. But when you have low trust, you have suspicion and that leads to low freedom. You have to have control and surveillance and so on. Take the extreme of China with its two billion cameras. The zero trust of the citizenry. But you can't have trust without truth. And you think of the words of Jesus. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's no freedom without truth. And on the left, truth is dead. Um, you asked the question yourself in the book, um, what then makes America distinctive and how strong and healthy is that distinctiveness today? What it, how strong is our distinctiveness today? I mean, people will say, you know, question whether America is, there's a, is exceptional, there's exceptionalism in America. Um, how healthy is that distinctiveness today? Well, I think America has been distinctive. I don't think America is exceptional. You know, as historians say, every great superpower in history has claimed to be exceptional. And the only real exception would be one that didn't claim to be exceptional. And each of them in their time have had points of uniqueness. You take the British Empire, which was based on a fleet, a navy around the world. And it looked very exceptional. And then, of course, it went when air power came. So I don't think America is exceptional, but I do think America is distinctive. In, think, think of it this way. Reinhold Niebuhr, the great American scholar at the end of World War II, mm -hmm. he argued that there were two bookends of history, authoritarianism, all order, no freedom. And at the other extreme, anarchy, all freedom, no order. And the distinctive thing about Mount Sinai and the Moses Revolution is what's called ordered freedom. And that's what America copied. So the Jews had a covenant and the American constitution is a nationalized, secularized form of covenant. The first political document in America is the Mayflower Compact, which was a right. covenant. So you have a notion of ordered freedom, freedom within a framework, and that's gone. Um, libertarian freedom is very different. Uh, we're going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with Oz Guinness talking about the Magna Carta of humanity. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Okay, we're back at Lighthouse Faith Podcast talking with fascinating conversation with Oz Guinness. He he is the author of the Magna Carta of Humanity, which is um, the, the Sinai's revolutionary faith and the future of freedom. The idea of freedom, and I, you've talked about this before, which I think is fascinating, and people don't think about this enough, that freedom actually is a lot more complex than people give it credit. Um, freedom, I mean, it, requir it requires restrictions, but explain why freedom is so incredibly complex. We'll put it this way. 
The paradox of freedom is that the greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. It undoes itself, it undermines itself. Or you take one of the most popular sayings carved all around Washington, D.C. Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. That's true. But most people see that quotation and they say, we've got to watch out for enemies. Germany in the 1930s. Actually, freedom and the history of freedom would say, we've got to be vigilant, not just about external enemies, but about ourselves. Hmm. Because freedom is brought down by free people. You think of the great saying by the 28-year-old Abraham Lincoln, as a nation of free men, either we will be free for all time or die by suicide. In other words, free people bring themselves down and mainly through the misuse and abuse of freedom. You know, you say the central contest is between Sinai and Paris. Um, and you, you know, because America, I would, I would guess that is, America is representative of Sinai, I guess, but between freedom under God's commands or an imitation of freedom under a false God. that That's kind of what I'm getting out of that. No, that's right. If, if you... Look into the depths of the Sinai Covenant and all that it meant. You have the ingredients for the richest, deepest, fullest understanding of living freely and justly together. In other words, freedom isn't just mine or yours or his or hers or whatever. We've got to live freely and maximize freely together. And that's what the Hebrew Covenant does well. And the American experiment at its best has the potential for doing And sadly, as I see it, and I'm a great admirer of this country, Mm -hmm. Americans are either from the left suppressing the roots of what it was or from other parts of the country squandering it in carelessness. With some, it's a matter they just simply don't know the history. I mean, you look at young Americans, they don't read books, they're not interested in history. And then you look at the public schools and how civic education has been thrown out. That is simply suicidal. Or you take the immigration debate, Lauren. We've Mm -hmm. talked about walls and sanctuary cities. I've lived in D.C. for the last 35 years. Nobody ever mentions citizenship. But the the, the importance of a wall or a boundary or some distinction between your neighbors is simply your citizens. You know what the country means? You know, Samuel Huntington used to say before he died, it's still relatively easy to become an American, but it's increasingly difficult to know what it is to be American. And that's citizenship, and that's disappearing. That, that is really the problem, because how many schools are, are teaching things like citizenship, and they're teaching um, and heralding America, um, America's greatness? I mean, how... I feel like they're taking all of that out of public schools, and this is why we're getting things like the IRS you know, not giving tax exempt status as this Christian group in Texas because it says, oh, the Bible's just a Republican manifest or something like that. And it's like, oh my gosh, how can this be? You know? Well, sheer ignorance, sadly. But think of the principle, and people need to start thinking first principles. You know, as the rabbis put it, if any project takes more than one generation, you need history and you need schools. Or uh, as they point out, take Sinai. What did Moses talk about the night of the Passover? After 430 years, they're going free. Does he mention freedom? No. They're going to the promised land of milk and honey, their own country. 
Does he mention it? No. Three times Moses talks about children. In other words, the story we tell to our children is critical first to identity and second to continuity. And if that ever breaks down, well, then freedom goes. That's true of faith and that's true of freedom. But America suicidally has thrown out civic education in the public schools and allowed things like the Howard Zinn view of American history or more recently the 1619 Project. Let's put it bluntly, they are suicidal. That's the end of the republic if those things prevail. You know, you talked about, you know, the power, the question. I mean, and I kind of think that revolutions are about authority. I'm not, I guess power for me is like a manifestation of the authority that you're working under. Most people who, who are, you know, secular don't realize that there is a authority under which they are working. But behind the whole idea of um, power is under whose authority do you choose to exist? And, and I don't think a lot of people give that much question. Unless it's God's authority, you know, you are a slave to false idols. And this is the whole idea behind, you know, my sort of lighthouse faith. You know, only God gives us freedom because only God knows who we truly are and what we truly need. Um, and this is the problem with the 1789 and the French Revolution. Um, but how do you get back to that in a pluralistic society that says, I get to decide what my faith is and what my morality is? Well, you're right. And you see that Moses, at the end of his life to the, the Jews, he says, you have to choose. I put for you good and bad, life and death, choose life. You know, Joshua, when he handed on in his time, he says, choose today whom you're going to serve. Every generation in a free society has a choice. And someone's got to put before America, which view of freedom do you want? Which revolution are you going to follow? because the choices have consequences. Now, you mentioned freedom earlier. One of the most extraordinary things is that only in the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, the Jews and Christians, do you have a grounding for freedom. Now, that's a startling claim. Obviously, the Egyptians had no freedom. The Babylonians didn't. They, you were under your stars. Even the Greeks didn't. You were following by fate. But our modern secularists, our atheists, you read Sam Harris's book on freedom, he says it's an illusion. Hmm. The front cover is a puppet dangling on strings. In other words, we're determined chemically, psychologically, or whatever it is. There is no freedom outside the biblical view of men and women created in the image of God and significant free, able to choose. So even the grounding of freedom itself is rooted in the Lord and in the scriptures. You know, I have to deal with, because you deal with it in your book as well, you talk about America's hypocrisy, which is slavery, of course. And a lot of people will bring that up and say, how, how can America have this declaration of independence and saying that all, you know, men and women are, men are created equal men in the larger sense, not like um, the sex men. Um, but Lincoln understood where America's sin lay. I mean, he worked through politics to end slavery. And even Jefferson understood too, that slavery, to be wrong, and he vowed, you know, it, it, it would end because God is just. So there is this understanding, but how can you sort of reconcile America's greatest hypocrisy with the Declaration of Independence? Sadly, you can't. In other words, it was the Declaration 
and the truths behind it in the scriptures that made slavery an evil, a contradiction, hypocrisy. Now, the Europeans saw it at the time. You know, my family, the Guinness Brewing family, we, we were friends and supporters of William Wilberforce, the abolitionist. Wilberforce pleaded with Jefferson, personally, and with James Monroe to join a concert of benevolence standing on the seas against slavery, and they refused. You know, Samuel Johnson, the great, rather conservative, but the first dictionary writer, he said, how is it that those who are, this is at the time, how is it that those who are yelping about freedom, his word, are the drivers of slaves? It was a rank evil and hypocrisy, visible an ocean away, and it should have been dealt with, and it wasn't. Sadly, when Lincoln did deal with it, he was killed and it was followed by Jim Crow. And so this is America's abiding evil, and it needs to be dealt with. But I would say not in the way of the radical left. The civil rights, and before that, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and people at Booker T. Washington, you know, they tackled it in the name of biblical justice. Right. The civil rights movement made an incredible difference. And now I think the radical left is taking America back by making it something inherent and chronic and irremediable. Yeah, I, I, I keep saying this, that without biblical justice, without the gospel, um, the oppressed, if you want to call them oppressed, have no chance but become the oppressor. There is no other way because you don't have forgiveness. You don't have mercy. You don't have grace. The only model they have is to be like their oppressors. So one of the things you talked about, this third revolutionary threat against America, what is this third revolutionary threat against America? So the pro progressive left, what is the problem here? Uh, the third revolutionary threat? I'm not quite sure what that means. It must be. Is that something on the cover? I'm not I, sure. You know what, maybe it's actually, but, but and you talk about the statue toppling um, of in parks and squares. You know, we're having this debate about uh, Teddy Roosevelt statue at the American History Museum on, on Central Park West here in New York. It's been there mm -hmm. forever. And now people want to take it down. What no, is no. It, it is, it is um, there's an insanity at work that, you know, every white heterosexual male is an enemy of, of, of our culture. Where does that come from? Well, a cancel culture is a mixture of power game, but utopianism. And that's why it becomes absolutely merciless. And you know the book by Douglas Murray, The Dangerous Madness of Crowds. He's an atheist and he's gay. But he points out that a central feature of the radical left is its absolute lack of mercy. There is no forgiveness. And of course, that came from the French Revolution. Anyone accused, off to the guillotine. There's no innocent until you're proved guilty or guilty until you're proved innocent and there's no time for that, you're executed or you're, in today's world, cancelled. And that mercilessness of utopian power games is a feature of the radical left and it's extremely ugly and extremely foolish. I mean, if only you think, what are future generations going to say against us? Every single human being is flawed. Right. And if we're to be held by the standards we're imposing on our ancestors, we're going to come out very guilty too. You know, you talk about different identities, but you know, I'm wondering if you know what is driving this current revolution. Is it sexual? Is it economic? Is it racial? Is it just a multi-pronged kind of um, attack? Um, what really is kind of driving it? If there is one thing driving it, 
Well, I would argue they're using sex and race and obesity and things like that. They're using them. But the roots of it is in Marxism. But it's not classical Marxism. It comes from Antonio Gramsci in the 1920s and the rise of what's sometimes called neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. And that flourished through the Frankfurt School in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, made a huge impact in America through the influence of Herbert Marcuse at the University of San Diego in the 60s. And it was Marcuse and a gentleman called Rudi Deutschke in Germany of the Red Brigade who called for a long march through the institutions. In other words, their cultural Marxism, you've got to win the press and the media, the colleges, the universities, the, the so-called entertainment industry, Hollywood and so on. That's certainly then, been done. <laughs> That's certainly yeah, been done. They've done it. But the trouble is most people were asleep. I've been trying to say some of these things for years, but most people are asleep. So this year, everyone's suddenly talking about critical race theory. But of course, it's much wider than race. You've got critical women's studies, critical queer studies, critical fat studies across the board. Occupy Wall Street was behind a lot of this, the same as the Black Lives Matter now. But it's not only much wider, it's much older. And if Americans want to understand it, Nietzsche was right. You need to know the genealogy of ideas, where they come from, because there are ideas abroad in America, and some of them are now in Congress, that are totally undermining the American experiment. So on this July the 4th, I hope Americans wake up not just a great celebration and a barbecue and fireworks and all that. Americans need to say, where is the Republic today? And where's the crisis? And where did it come from? And how can I make a stand? If they believe in freedom, as it was originally set out. Bring me back home to Sinai. Bring us back to why Sinai is so important to the birth of America. Well, Sinai is a great liberation. But that negative liberation is only half, half of it. You're freed from, they were freed from Pharaoh and Egypt and slavery, but they were freed for the positive side of freedom. And that's where the covenant and how you live together freely comes in. And so Americans need to explore all those roots and work them out. I mean, I've got a chapter on the Constitution and on truth and trust and freedom and things like that, that sound very simple. But constitution isn't just law. It actually starts in the heart, as Judge Leonard Hand used to stress in World War II. And uh, American freedom is really, on, I, I would argue, let me put it bluntly, intellectuals on the left are kneeling on the neck of freedom. And freedom in America is as endangered as poor George Floyd. Wow. And Americans better look at what's happening very carefully. Do they care about freedom? Do they really care about justice? Do they understand how incredibly distinctive with its flaws the American Revolution was? It would be suicidal folly to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I want to thank you so much, Osgan, as you are just, it's just fascinating. The book is called The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. Um, this is a great read for this time of year to remember where this country started from and, and hopefully to get it back on track to where it should be going. 
I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thanks, Lauren. A real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day and a wonderful 4th of July. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.